I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And a wonderful welcome to Sunday once again with I-94. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hey, Jamie. And today in the studio, Studio B, right here on a gloomy gloomy uh late fall day or early fall day mild. Say. I call it mild it's a you know 60 degrees and it rained five inches overnight we are here with mr mark fisher he is the founder and uh is it correct to really say author or is it more correct to say curator of public correct collectors i was kind of wondering that myself when i started I think, reading. I, I think i usually say administrator administrator okay <laughs> good word well we're with mark fisher mark fisher by the way for those of you who know uh another mark fisher is not the late british marxist uh, and the author of the K-Punk writings, those have just been re-released. He is a Chicagoan who has been um, putting out the Public Collector's series uh, for quite some time. It's since 2007. Am I correct about that? Yes. So uh, Public Collector's, I think we should really start at the beginning for people that don't know what uh, Public Collector's is because it's it's kind of a wide-ranging um, artistic project that includes print. It includes uh, site-specific um, actions. It includes um, reportage, and it includes observation. Mark, take us through a little bit of how you see public collectors, and and give us a little insight on how you started this project. Um, it's definitely shifted a bit over the years. When I started in two thousand seven, I was thinking a lot about the kinds of cultural resources that museums, institutions typically either don't care about, don't do a very good job with. Or um, I was thinking a lot about people I've encountered um, who are just kind of amazing archivists of these marginal materials and the kind of communities that are built around amateur archiving and how with certain kinds of stuff, you find these people who know as much as any kind of museum curator with a PhD, but they're dealing with subject matter or content or histories that tend to be neglected. So my initial interest was in trying to kind of coordinate access between the public and these private individuals outside of an institutional framework so that you didn't have to be a college student, you didn't have to work in a museum, you didn't have to be a member of any kind of organization, but that people would avail themselves of their knowledge. the project has changed a bit over time. I tend to be doing things like longer, uh, more research-driven things, but still trying to pull from communities who have knowledge and experience to share and also kind of avail myself and my own experience to people um, in, a, in, a, in a kind of peer-to-peer sort of way um, or working on projects where I have to draw on a group of people who have something that they can lend in order to tell a story that wouldn't be told otherwise. One of the collections that you've displayed in the past was the band photos that they had at the Harold Washington Library. Wasn't that one of yours? Oh, I did dip into that. Um, So yeah, Harold Washington Library has, at some point the reader, the Chicago reader, the free weekly newspaper was getting 
needed to they were moving their offices and they just had couldn't deal with all of the stuff they had and they have this enormous archive of all of the touring musician eight by ten promo photos that had been sent to the paper uh, for things like concert listings since the paper started, I think, in 1971. And my understanding is first they offered some of this to the Newberry Library, um, who took a lot of the Chicago-related material, and then everything else went to Harold Washington Library. And this is a collection of like something like 50 to 70,000 photos. And um, it's not just things that bands or record labels have sent to the reader. And it goes through the early 2000s, because I think after that, um, people stopped sending physical photos in the mail. They would just send an email with a link That's to That's what a I was going to mention. I was going to say, I, I wrote for zines in the 90s, and ba- when you received an album or a CD, you'd get a photograph or sometimes a booklet or a bunch of stickers and buttons, and it seems like that stuff, the analog promotional stuff, has kind of gone the way of the dinosaur. And mo- yeah, and... Posters, too. Right, right. Yeah, you would get all this printed stuff. And at the time, I was when I was doing a zine in the late 80s and early 90s, I would get that stuff also. And when I received that stuff, it's like that was the stuff you didn't want to print or do anything with because you sort of felt like, well, everyone's already seen it because it's already been sent to everyone else. So the thing you wanted was uh, someone's amateur photo they took of the same band at a concert or something. Because even if it was kind of a bad photo, it was something that would be new um, and never published before. But now I feel like, in you know, this collection is amazing, and it's something that some of the librarians actually don't know that they have that stuff. It's I on, wasn't aware of it. It's on the. It's described in a very generic way on in special collections in the library's website, and um, and once I started looking through it, I mean, part of what was exciting was that I haven't looked at some of this material or ever seen any of it you know, in decades. So it's sort of old enough that uh, it's not something that feels regurgitated over and over again. But the other thing that's that's caught up in those files that's especially interesting is that, you know, this is from back in a period where the reader and free weeklies had the resources to send freelance photographers out to take photos of shows. So just the other day, um, I was wondering if anyone, I, I was really curious about, um, uh, this concert that the Dutch band The X played with Tom Cora at Lounge X in 1994, which uh, Malachi Richer recorded, um, Creative Audio Archive, has a tape of that. I attended that show. Um, and I saw online on the Reader's Archives that Bill Meyer wrote a long article uh, about this show, and I thought, like, oh, maybe they sent a photographer. And sure enough, there were a couple photos taken by a freelance photographer in that band's file in the library. So the files also act as a catch-all for all of this, um, you know, all these other uh, photos that maybe one was published, but 20 were taken or something. You mentioned Malachi Richer, Mark. Uh, One of the publications we have in front of us is a kind of short bio of Malachi. Was he one of the first people you came across who was doing this sort of amateur archiving? Um. I mean, not, he wasn't someone that I thought about in that way. I just sort of thought of him as the guy who was recording all of these concerts and then also very politically active. And, um, and uh, he had a very kind of um, uh, 
you know, I guess sort of intense and surprising um, uh, death, which caught a lot of people. Yeah, off I, I had never heard of him until until I read your publication. Can you can you give listeners just a, a little background on Malachi? Uh, sure. So um, Malachi Richer uh, attended thousands of concerts in Chicago starting in the 80s, recorded many of them. Uh, he attended a lot of uh, I- improvised music shows, free jazz, uh, underground, rock, noise, um, the kinds of things that if someone didn't document them, you know, I mean, it just, if someone didn't record them, like documentation probably wasn't going to happen. In and many and he just did it on his own, and he would he would gift the recordings to the bands, right? Yeah, he was not sort of just like a bootlegger. He was someone who was active, an active participant in this culture, and maintained a. And he was a musician too. He he contributed to recordings. He appeared on the Arsenal album, right? With Steve Albini right. and Big Black. So oh, he wow. he he was a, a person that both documented the scene, but he was a, a working musician as well. Wait, what was Arsenal? Arsenal was a side project of Big Black and Santiago Durango. Really? Yep. I've never heard that. Well, he made uh, yeah. two records. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I need to find those. I, I think they came out on um, Quarter Stick. Oh, okay. Say. That sounds right. Yeah. yeah. Is it noisy? Oh, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> Santiago Durango? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lawyer to the stars? Yes, yes. it's noisy. Okay. <laughs> um, well, sometimes those guys hmm. will do like a weird side project where it's like this, jazz or this something. This was not like the Melvins with Red Cross. This was straight okay. up noise. Yeah. <laughs> I first noticed, for lack of a better, Malachi was, um, I actually saw Mersbo in a loft on Fullerton when I lived in Logan Square. It was probably like in the late 90s, and he was there filming, I mean, pardon me, recording, and it was such a weird, there was like 30 people there, and it was like an empty apartment, and Mersbo played. No, it's just like, what is going on here? Yeah, I mean, some of these things, you know, I mean, that, that he documented, you know, were attended by 12 people, probably. Um, so, you know, and he would always, uh, he was especially conscientious about giving recordings to the musicians. And a lot of times people were working on, you know, developing new compositions, maybe, or trying something out. You know, it wasn't like going to, uh, you know, record a Billy Joel concert where, you know, you get a, you get maybe a micro variation of Piano Man or something. You know, it's like stuff that, like, if it wasn't recorded, it'll never be heard again. Um, but he was also, uh, you know, very fierce anti-war activist. And many people only became aware of who he was uh, after his death, uh, which was he committed suicide in a very public way. He immolated himself alongside the expressway in front of that uh, Flame of the Millennium sculpture that many Kennedy. people, yeah. you know, drive past all the time. There's all this kind of landscaping around it that wasn't there uh, before. And um, there was a lot of confusion around his death because, um, you know, for several days uh, his body was not able to be identified. And then after it was identified, um, he had also set up a video recorder and video recorded his suicide, uh, left a mission statement on um, his Savage Sound website, uh, which is still online, Um, also wrote his own obituary and I think was trying to encourage a more forceful outcry against the war in Iraq. And, um, you know, I I think... uh, most of the discussion around his death was about the 
kind of astonishing circumstances around yeah. what he did rather than yeah. like how this might be a call to well, His death action. was in two, 2006, and I think you published the, the bio in 2014. What, uh, what urged you to write it at that time, and, and, and uh, how did you reflect on your own project while you were writing it? Um, I was invited by uh, Anthony Elms, who was one of three curators of the 2014 Whitney Biennial, the Whitney Museum of American Art. Um, and the invitation was extremely, this extremely informal email, sort of like, you know, is there some way public collectors might make sense for this? Like, you know, I don't know, maybe some kind of web project or a vitrine or something. And I really had to think about this because when I started doing this, you know, my intention was to deal with the stuff that museums just absolutely don't care about and will never care about in a million years. What's a vitrine? Sounds like a bathroom. <laughs> a, uh, like a glass display case, oh. like a museum display case. It's yeah. the same thing. It's got the same sort of thing a latrine has in it, except that. Not a latrine, pay- a vitrine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> same, same exact thing. Um, so I was trying to think about, okay, like what would I do with this if, if anything? And, there's a kind of narrative that happens with the Whitney Biennial that this is like, you know, you should just start buying the art of anyone who's in this exhibit because it's such a, uh, you know, high profile exhibition that anything you do is sure to increase in value after the show has happened. And, um, and like, I really hate that whole narrative and it's also uh, completely untrue for most people. Um, you haven't retri- retired with your riches that you, no, took no, in from the Whitney your public collector yeah, riches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I won't even get into uh, the level of support that the museum was able to give toward. Uh, there was a lot of couch surfing involved in. Uh, oh boy. In <laughs> um, but um, so I started thinking about like, okay, well, if I was going to do this, it should be because public collectors is it's like my work is the kind of presentation of often these artifacts made by other people or, or these kind of stories that are being collected. Um, so I felt like I should focus on someone who, I mean, to, to me, Malachi's story was really, like, really should be more widely known, not just because of his activism, not just because of the fact that he recorded so many shows, but because he was someone who was in the background uh, and doing really important work to enable the creativity of but other people. His dedication was remarkable, man. I mean, when you talk about the, the I don't know how many Mead notebooks he filled out from 97 to 2006, yeah, 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 meticulously yeah. recording yeah, yeah. all the details of every show, that was amazing. Yeah, and, um, and I also really liked the idea of highlighting the work that Creative Audio Archive at Experimental Sound Studio is doing because Malachi's family could have given his recordings to a huge university archive where it probably would have gotten completely lost and I think they felt that Creative Audio Archive would really be able to give this the proper attention it deserves and I think it was a great choice because that collection and that studio has all of these relationships with a lot of the musicians he recorded so I like the idea of using the opportunity to tell this guy's story which would have never appeared before so many people otherwise of using it to um, highlight the important archiving work that a small organization like Creative Audio Archive is doing. Um, Of course, like, I'm not going to go to New York and tell New Yorkers a New York story. I'm going to go to New York and tell them a Chicago story. I mean, you know, come on. They need Uh, Chicago stories. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a big – and also, like, this sort of idea of, like, you know, the – I didn't want to work with, like – 
someone uh, – I, I felt like I should focus on someone who, who maybe is no longer alive because it seemed strange to be like a representative for a living artist in that sh- situation. But I also didn't want to focus on someone where maybe like a gallery was working with their estate and they would be able to co- – and the, and the project would be used as this sort of like marketing tool or something. Um, like there was nothing commercial about Malachi's practice. There's not really anything commercial about my own creative practice. And so I wanted to highlight and tell the story of someone who was doing everything, I think, for the best reasons, right, and in the best way. Mark, can you access his recordings through that creative archive? I, I've never heard heard them, and I would love to be able to. Is, or is there somewhere you can access Yeah, them? you can. Um, you can make an appointment with Creative Audio Archive. Um all of the permissions around uh, his recordings are kind of a work in progress. And, oh, because there's so many bands. Yeah, and, and, and they're different. Different people have different uh, rules about what they'll allow to be done with their stuff. So that was kind of a fun um, part of working on the project was working with them to, like, on very short notice, get all these permissions. And pretty much everyone who responded, there were maybe one or two exceptions, but... Um, you know, it was fine because I had there was a listening station with about fifty of his concerts that he recorded. Because there were a lot of things that I attended. Like when I was going through this list of everything that they had, I was like, okay, I was at that. I was at that. I attended that. Um, I attended that with Anthony Elms, who curated the project. Like there were things that we went to together. I kind of liked the idea that my own history was quietly embedded in this. There are a couple of things where embarrassingly I could hear myself in the audience and I realized, okay, I must have been standing kind of close to Malachi when he was recording, yeah. which probably like annoyed the hell out of him. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it was fun like having, reaching out to bands like Unsane and the Digits and, you know, the X and, uh, and getting their permission or people like Eugene Chadbourne who was sort of, over the moon that like his music was going to be included at the Whitney. I'm like, come on, like you're like preeminent American artist. <laughs> you know, Of course your stuff belongs there. Um, but that was all of those other people that could be drawn into this project uh, by extension of Malachi was a really great part of working on that. Cool. Well, let's actually hear a couple samples of your work from Public Collectors. We're going to play an excerpt from the collection with the self-titled Public Collectors. As always, we want to thank Shanna Van Volt. She is our reader and International Anthem Archive for this week's music. What are the limits of a printed double-sided sheet of paper? How much can one page illustrate? How many lessons can it teach? In the world of Mexican laminas, the answer is quite a lot. Laminas are educational tools, thin A4 size printed sheets with glorious, full color illustration on one side, and one color text on the reverse, so tiny that it often warrants a magnifying glass. They are used primarily in elementary schools in Mexico, but also Puerto Rico, Spain, Panama, and other Spanish-speaking countries. My friend Paola Cabal learned of laminas on a trip to Mexico in 2012 and asked a shopkeeper about them. As a kid, you are often assigned by your teacher, depending on what grade you're in and what subject is being covered, to go and buy a specific lamina. 
teachers would most often use the laminas as a group resource, requesting different versions on each kid's supply list in order to assemble a collection that would be pinned around the classroom as instructional aids. A discussion I found on a craft website describes these as, quote, a poor man's encyclopedia, and notes that they are also called monographias. In the same discussion, another comment notes, Teachers usually have students cut the images and paste them in their notebooks with whatever notes the teacher gives them. With their neatly contained images, often in their own perfect little caption boxes, they lend themselves perfectly to cutting and collaging or scrapbooking. No subject is too expansive, and lessons can include seemingly every possible topic. In my modest collection of 25 different laminas, some of the subjects include the history of painting, rabies and its prevention, the history of architecture, illness, hygiene for students, sexual hygiene, sexual education, the reproductive system, atmospheric contamination, accidents in the workplace, rabbit dissection, contraception, the history of literature, the history of music, bird anatomy, and the respiratory system. I first encountered laminas on a 2001 trip to Cuernavaca, Mexico. I was there to install an exhibition of my artwork in a gallery at Jardín Borda, but I wanted nothing more than to walk the streets of the City of Eternal Spring, soaking up its hand-painted signage, bookstores, open-air printing shops, and street vendors. One of my favorite discoveries was a papalaria, where I encountered laminas and promptly put the clerks to work, fishing in the back of the shop for various titles I was interested in. Paolo Cabal describes her own experience of asking, seeking laminas that echoes my own. One buys laminas in the papalaria, an office, school, and art supply store, usually a small shop where most items are located out of reach behind a counter and along the walls. You ask one of the store clerks for the item that you need, say, a pencil sharpener, and he will bring you the three kinds that they sell, and then you make your selection and go on your way. When you ask for the laminas, they usually bring you a binder filled with each model they have in its own page protector. They are filed by number and letter printed somewhere along the margin of the lamina, usually on the top or the side, so you tell the clerk the number and letter of the lamina that you want, and he looks it up in a separate file cabinet he has that holds them, and he gives you the one you've asked for. If he's out of the one you need, you have to come back another day. He won't sell you the display one in the binder. Like Mexican comic books made for adult audiences that are commonly filled with extreme images of sex and violence, laminas for teenage readers are not afraid to go way over the top in their treatment of moral lessons about drug abuse, prostitution, and AIDS. One lamina about rabies shows four gigantic rats crawling around the bed of a sleeping young girl, a visceral portrayal like the stuff of horrific nightmares. Most of the laminas I own are produced by the company copyrighted RAF and printed in Mexico. Some of the newer-looking titles are credited to Sunrise, also in Mexico. They are mostly undated, and while some appear to have been made around the time that I purchased them, 2001, others look to date back to the 1970s, and Accidents de Trabajo is clearly dated 1969 on the reverse. Some of the writings are credited to a particular author, but most are anonymous. The illustrators, who are clearly the stars of Laminas, and my primary reason for writing about them, are uncredited. Who are these heroes of education and lurid imagery? What else did they do? Did they have personal art practices as well? This is a history that needs to be written. 
And once again, that was a reading from Mark Fisher's Public Collectors. As always, we want to thank Shannon Van Volt in International Anthem. Mark, we, we chose that one because, um, well, first of all, I happen to be really fascinated with the subject matter, uh, which is is really um, appeals to my inner comic book nerd. Uh, but also because of kind of the last line. You, you talk about this is a history that needs to be written, and that kind of is a motif for your entire practice. Most of the things that you are highlighting are – Things that I think you kind of noted maybe are people that wouldn't necessarily wouldn't necessarily care about. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and you do. Did you start off as as a collector, and did your interest in collections uh, lead to this entire project? Um, that book came about as an invitation from um, a then new press, Inventory Press, and it, it was sort of they have really wonderful designers and always find the best printers, and I loved the idea that they were willing to commit to, you know, a full-color, beautifully printed publication about this stuff that in many cases just has zero monetary value if people even know what it is. And to kind of treat it with the same regard that, um, you know, a, uh, like, hot-selling painter would get, you know, for for their work. Um, I think, you know, I've always kind of saved things or especially just anything involving paper and printing. Like I come out of a background of, you know, doing a zine, printing a zine while I was in high school. And Mark actually had a show at Harold Washington with your zine, which was a hardcore, uh, hardcore punk zine. Remember we did punk and metal. Yeah. They let me, I really enjoyed um, getting to fill these glass cases that they have on the eighth floor with um, this material because they're like just, they're just right in front of the uh, maquette for Anish Kapoor's Cloudgate, you know, this, like, multi-million dollar object. And, uh, you know, it, like, and then this whole presentation of these photocopied things made by people, like, stealing copies from Kinko's or, like, their parents' You're offices. saying it's not a multi-million dollar operation. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a multi-dollar uh, operation. But it's very important, and I came up on zines. Yeah. In the 80s, it's so different now. But we talk about, Jamie and I sometimes talk about, you know, and how uh, un-PC a lot of them were back in the day. And there was just kind of this, like, anything goes mentality, especially in the 80s and 90s. And Such as Exit by Mark Mothersbaugh? You can still here. find that stuff at Quimby's, right? Yeah, oh, sure, can. sure, sure. I I don't know about things like Answer Me, which was just, Answer this, me, yeah. Yeah, it was just, just this horrible Black can't mention any zine. Can't yeah, mention well, any any content of Jim. It was, a, it was extraordinarily racist and and sexist, and he he played it off as it's just being funny, you know. And I, I'll be honest, I thought it was funny at the time. I wouldn't find it humorous now, but the, the, and then they actually did a rape issue, which Yikes. just like broke. Well, he the, also ended up in jail for beating his wife. Yes, I believe, so. yeah, he was he's a terrible human being. And the so, why are we talking about this? Jim Gray. Well, um, well I mean, the, the zine culture, though, you know, back then, I mean, fa- we've mentioned this, I think, in the show before. Fact Sheet 5 was the Bible of the underground zine mm-hmm. culture. And mm-hmm. anybody who was interested in finding out what was going on with independent art or music or literature had to look at Fact Sheet 5 because if you didn't, you didn't know what was going on. Um, it was really like an encyclopedia of zines, which frequently didn't really leave the confines. If they left the confines of their city, they were doing well. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, a review, and I mean, I would send my zine to uh, Fact Sheet 5, and if they reviewed it positively, you know, you might get 40 pieces of mail from all over the world, the same with Maximum Rock and Roll. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Which is still and, around. MRR still uh, publishes no, to this they, day. No they, no, they did. They did. Actually, they stopped. Uh, Have they stopped now? Like April, I think. Just oh, very, yeah. Very the print, recently. the print run, and they're still doing online presence, but the print run. Okay. A, uh, a hot tip uh, for Chicagoans is that Harold Washington Library has every issue of Maximum Rock and Roll on the eighth floor in these bound volumes that feel like no one has ever breathed on them because they probably have. Because no, no one because because no one like would expect that you would find that at the library. I, I was absolutely shocked. And also just like the depth that there was, it's just like, it's all there. So you want to talk about your hardcore architecture project a little bit? I, I love that one. Uh, I mean, we, I could, yeah. I mean, what I was going to say just, just about like kind of my interest in this stuff, I think like, it's like if you, when you publish a zine, you know, or involved in print culture, I mean, just like all of these pieces of paper are kind of flying your way from all over the world. So the opportunity to write about something like these Mexican monographias, um, you know, it's like a double-sided sheet of printed paper. Like it's like the lowest kind of form of print production and just, but a container of so much content and just kind of amazing visuals. And, you know, all of this stuff is sort of always cycling in and out of my life. Hardcore architecture is this research project around where people in underground bands, hardcore bands in the 1980s throughout the U.S. lived. And that came about by kind of matching a print resource, um, Maximum Rock and Roll, which people like Fact Sheet 5, but for music, like if you were in some kind of punk type band or, you know, had some kind of self-initiated project, you would send your stuff to them for review. And they would review things at every level. So they would review a demo tape that someone released themselves, you know, or a self-released record. And um, and people would just say in their, you know, when they sent these things in, like, tell the readers that they can get this by sending $3 to this address, which happens to be my parents' house. And uh, now with Google Street View, 25, 30 years later, you can actually just plug in those addresses and zip codes and see where that place was. Hmm. And I think, like, when as when I was a participant in this underground kind of network, you know, you would get mail from all over the place and it would never occur to you like where anyone lived like or what that city was like. And, um, you know, I started, so I started looking at the bands that Maximum Rock and Roll reviewed and capturing screenshots of these houses and like, you know, where my mom and dad like lived, you know, like that house could have easily been one of these sort of suburban homes that, you yeah, had this band, uh, Scraps from Detroit, which were like this Misfits clone band that used to open all the shows when I was a kid, and I was so surprised to see Scraps in there. And uh, someone's re-releasing all their. They're actually a decent band, but they all looked like the Misfits, and they're like big tough guys. <laughs> and um, I couldn't believe that 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 they were covered. But how did you choose the specific bands? Was oh, it-, it was just everything I could find that had a, uh, a home address. So I didn't try to find like the record label office buildings um it was everything that was self-released and it ranges from the everything is list hosted on um a tumblr blog hardcorearchitecture.tumblr.com uh there's about 550 houses logged so far and yeah it's everything from people who made one demo tape and then never did anything with music again to bands like sonic youth who you know, initially early on were um, releasing their own cassettes and stuff like that or had their own kind of fledgling mail oper- order operation from Kim Gordon and Thurston Moore's loft in Chinatown, I think was the address. Um, 
But uh, yeah, it's sort of like an it's like an architectural survey of where underground music in the U.S. came from. Basically. Cool. Well, we need to take a break and pause to remember the folks that make this station possible. You're listening to I-94. This is Lumpin' Radio. We'll be back after the break. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpin' Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpinradio.com. I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. A survey of reviews for Swaporama on the website yelp.com paints an ugly picture. Many of the vendors appear to have been stealing from their jobs or stealing from Best Buy garbage cans. Tons of Dynex, Insignia, and Rocketfish stuff with Service Center and PRC stickers, meaning that those items are most likely defective. Way too much junk. Some vendors had single shoes, broken toys. Another review. Nunchucks, throwing stars, ninja swords, confederate flag emblazoned bowie knives, BB guns, and a whole bunch of other stuff that really might not be good to sell to a miner. But that didn't stop anyone. Multiple reviews claim that Swaporama is a good place to find your missing bicycle. Come here to find your stolen bike. Once you identify your bike, make sure you call 911 and have an officer with you before approaching the vendor. Another reviewer's succinct analysis. This is capitalism's cold rock bottom. There is some truth to the reviews that claim this is the place to find your stolen goods. In 2011, the Oregon-based band Portugal the Man performed at Lollapalooza, and $80,000 worth of gear was stolen from their van after the gig. Shortly after the theft, Chicago police arrested a Southside mechanic named Juan Ocampo, who had purchased some of the gear. Juan Ocampo knew that $80,000 in instruments and sound gear was stolen when he agreed to purchase it for $1,000 at Swaporama at 40th and Ashland, Assistant Cook County State Attorney Aaron Antonietti said at his bond hearing Tuesday. Swaporama creates the possibility of a livelihood for many who have been shut out of other forms of employment. Sellers may be homeless, undocumented immigrants, people with criminal records, or persons with disabilities. Parents are often seen working stalls together with their children. The operating fees for vendors are low, currently $40 a month, so just about anyone with goods or services to sell and a way to get them in and out of Swaparama can become a vendor. The market isn't exactly a safe haven, though. On June 29, 2013, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agents, ICE, in collaboration with the Office of the Cook County Sheriff, swooped down and arrested 22 workers. 19 were released shortly after. Gail Montenegro, a spokesperson for ICE, claimed the operation was conducted, quote, in search of people who were selling pirated CDs. The purpose of the Department of Homeland Security is to prevent the sale of these products in our streets and dismantle organizations' criminals behind this illicit activity, end quote. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. You are listening to I-94 here on Lumpen Radio. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hey. And you just heard an excerpt from Mark Fisher's Public Collectors. Mark is the administrator, as he puts himself, of this project, which involves printed material, books, and also site-specific uh, investigations. 
And I kind of wanted to get into a little bit of that. Uh, I do want to touch on the, the clip you just heard once again, thanks to uh, Shanna Van Volden, International Anthem. But you actually have a number of um, actions, like I'll, I'll put it in that maybe not the best word, where you go with artists to uh, courtrooms, you go with artists to have meals, you record these interactions, and you write down uh, the observations that you make. How did, how did you, first of all, get interested in following uh, the very peculiar rhythms of the Chicago court system? Um, I, uh, my experience in court before visiting criminal court with other artists was only that I had been called for jury duty a couple times, um, which I found to be just an incredibly fascinating, rich experience. Um, but one time I was interviewed, uh, actually both times I was in criminal court, I was interviewed, but not chosen to be a juror. And, um, that was kind of the extent of my experience. Um, I always thought it would be interesting to return, uh, without the kind of pressure of potentially being on a jury. And I started going to court because I, uh, you know, in the wake of, uh, Jason Van Dyke's murder of Laquan McDonald and a number of other, uh, police murders that were being widely protested around the country as well as in Chicago. You know, I was going to those protests and I was, you know, marching with thousands of people in the street and I was, you know, laying on the ground with everyone else and blocking traffic and doing all of those things. And I think, you know, that, that kind of, those actions are really important. Um, but at some point, uh, someone pointed out that there were pretrial hearings were beginning for Jason Van Dyke's case. And, uh, and they explained, you know, what room this would happen in, what time this would happen, and gave all of the logistics, um, which I usually it's can be kind of difficult sometimes to find out that information. Um, so I thought like, okay, like I need, I'd like to see what goes on from this perspective. Um, I've collaborated with people who are incarcerated when I was an undergrad. I was you did a, that out, Prison Inventions. Uh, booklet and also didn't you have an art show as well for that yeah there were a number of exhibits it was a collaboration um the group another part of my work is that i'm part of the group temporary services and we had collaborated with this artist i remember Angelo, when we first met i didn't know you had done that and then i was over at your house and we discussed that because i uh -huh. had the book and i'd also attend i think it was on chicago avenue that was a long time ago when they had all his inventions. Oh, at um, yeah, at uh, iSpace. Yeah, the gallery that, that no was a while back. Exists. But yeah, I that was uh, it was I will never forget. He had a a chess set made out of toilet paper that was paper mache. Right, right. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Colored with Kool Aid. Yeah, yeah. But um, there's but, so much to talk about. I'm yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, all yeah. over the place. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I'd never seen um. You know, I'd never, you know, I've done like kind of activist work around these issues, but really had never observed uh, in person how the court system works. And of course, like when you're chosen, you know, brought in for jury duty, makes you think that, you know, jury trials are the norm when in fact, like almost nothing is a jury trial. Um, so, you know, so what happened was, so I went to some of the pretrial hearings for Jason Van Dyke and uh, there were a number of other, not tons, but maybe 20 or so other observers um, who I would say probably, you know, have kind of activist background or um, an activist reason for being there. And people were really cool, you know, like when there was a recess and if I, there was something I didn't understand, 
you know, I could ask the person next to me, uh, you know, like, what happened there? Like, or, like, who are these other people that are being called? Like, and they'd say, oh, well, those are other people who have cases and they're just sort of filling up space while someone is doing something else so they can, like, process these other people. And at one point, I went in one day and uh, to one of these pretrial hearings for Jason Van Dyke. And as happens all the time, someone needed more time to get a document or something. And the whole thing was over in like two minutes uh, in recess until the next day or postponed for a week or something. And, you know, I had driven. I don't live particularly close to criminal court on 26th in California. So I had driven all the way down there in morning traffic. And I'm like, well, I'm here. Like, what else? maybe I should go see something else. And, you know, and I went to another courtroom and quickly saw that, you know, for most cases, I mean, there's nobody in the courtroom except for other defendants or other people. And there was no one to sort of compare notes with um, about something I didn't understand. And I realized like, this is something that would be good to continue doing with another person. And I like the idea of bringing artists because, you know, we, you know, we have different ways of processing this stuff or different things that we might notice. So it's different from attending court with like a lawyer or a journalist or, um, you know, or a uh, detective or something. Um, you know, we might talk mainly about, uh, you know, how people stand or what they're wearing or like what the building is like or what the room is like and the acoustics and the sort of feeling in the room. Uh, Claire Pentecost and I talked about all of the artwork on the wall of one judge's courtroom, <laughs> you know? Um, so we're not bound by like quite the same expectations that a journalist would have or something like that. Three of the uh, the four cases that I read about in the booklet, there, there are a number of these residencies. Uh, I don't know how many. I read five through eight. Three of the four were about uh, an inmate named Gerald Reed. Right. Uh, and where we're left at the end of that booklet, uh, uh, Gerald's case hasn't been quite uh, concluded. Can you can you tell us about Gerald Reed, how you were introduced to the case, and, and uh, where it's at now? Uh, Gerald Reed um, is, uh, has been incarcerated for, I think, 28 years now. He is um, someone uh, – I really don't want to get the details of this, this wrong, and um, so I, I, I won't go into a ton of detail. But um, he was tortured by uh, – I mean, it's, history goes back to all those cases uh, around – surrounding John Burge and um, other – Michael Kill. Michael Kill and um, and we others. We had uh, Roland Kitchen on the show. He was one of the. He wrote a book about it. Right, right, and um, Ronald, so, not Roland. Sorry. Ronald, yeah. yeah, and um, so Gerald was one of these people who was picked up by detectives, tortured until he confessed to a crime that he did not commit. Um, he's been incarcerated for about twenty-eight years. Um, there was just a hearing for him about a week ago, which I was not able to attend. I've been able to attend some of his hearings. The first one that um, that I attended was actually a case where uh, Salem Kolodjulin, uh was the courtroom resident that day. And um, we had tried to attend uh, a hearing around Jason Van Dyke, and it was one of these things that was postponed very quickly. And I had noted that um, there was going to be a hearing for Gerald Reed um, whose case I was not really familiar with. Um, 
that day because a friend, uh, Sarah Wild, who has been paying close attention to his case, posted about it on Facebook. Um, so I offered to Salem that uh, that was another thing that we could go listen to. And uh, we went to that hearing and spent about an hour and a half uh, with Sarah, with uh, Gerald's mother, Armanda, um, listening to Gerald Reed describe in very emotional and great detail uh, his experience when he was in custody. Um, he had had a, uh, a metal rod in his leg from a previous unrelated injury, and one of the detectives kicked this rod in his leg so hard that it broke. Um, but one of the things with this project, so the way the project works is that um, artists contact me. Um, we decide on a date. I pick them up, um, bring them to criminal court. We usually observe for about three hours, sometimes longer, typically the entire morning session. And then we go to uh, Taqueria El Milagro around the corner from the court, discuss what we just experienced. Um, I record the conversation, transcribe it. We make edits together. Sometimes the artists want to write or do something additional after the fact. And um, every four residents, I call it an artist residency. Um, it is an artist residency. It maybe stretches what that can be, but uh, that's that's why you do this kind of stuff. Do you ever get, um, I had a question about, he yeah. broke a rod and it's like, did it, did the courts or the provide surgery to, re, to fix it or is his leg destroyed? Um, he's, he's wheelchair bound right now and wow. still dealing with, um, the only reason I ask is cause I have rods in my ankle and I can't think anything worse than that as far as pain. Well, I can think of worse, but yeah, no, it, it, it sounds it's, horrible. It, it's hard to imagine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but one of the aspects of this, and then, so then I, I make a publication of these with transcripts of these conversations, uh, every four residents, which is roughly every four or five months, um, one of the aspects of the project is that there is this opportunity to observe some cases like Gerald Reed's uh, across multiple hearings. So sometimes when I find out when something is going on, I might try to schedule uh, for an artist to have a residency on a date when that might be possible. So, for example, Ed Marzuski um, of Lumpen Radio and Co-Prosperity Sphere and everything else, um, Ed and I attended uh, a hearing with the judge's findings on Gerald's case after all of these other hearings, after listening to his testimony, collecting testimony from other people. And at that hearing, um, his, uh, Gerald Reed's forced, con coerced confession was, uh, was thrown out. Um, and we, I think we thought that like he would probably be released and be done with this ordeal really soon. Um, but it continues because the state prosecution will not drop the case. Um, I'm not sure what the, uh, I'm not quite up to date on what happened in the last week or so, but uh, but this is still ongoing, like a number of people who... I have a, a couple of related questions. One, um, where can people find these these booklets, the Courtroom Artist Residency Reports? Um, everything that I publish is distributed online through Half Letter Press, H-A-L-F Letter Press, um, dot com, which is um, the web store and publishing imprint of the other project I'm part of, the other group, Temporary Services. Uh, in Chicago, Quimby's Books okay. always has everything. Uh, in New York, Printed Matter always has everything. Okay. Well, and the related question is, you, you talked a little bit earlier about being um, a little bit averse to the, the commercial aspects of publishing. How does that clash with 
distribution, trying to get this stuff to the widest possible audience. Oh, I mean, this is such a, uh, you know, it, it's such a low level. Um, but it's important stuff that I, I, I never would have read about otherwise unless I was doing this show and it had been passed along to me by Jeremy. Yeah, distribution is really, I mean, distribution of this kind of material is really uh, is really challenging. I mean, it's sort of a constant um, struggle to uh, get this stuff out into the world. And I think my, my preference tends to be to, um, I often feel like I'm making the 400-page book 40 pages at a time rather than kind of like hiding away for a couple of years working on like an enormous thing. I like the idea of releasing things episodically. Volumes, yeah. And um, uh, which also makes the publications inexpensive. A lot of them are $6, $7, $8. Um, I like the idea of this sort of constant, you know, if people, you know, when subjects are somewhat different, people will often, most people are not, like, don't have a completist approach to what I do in the way that they might with other authors where they have to have every single thing that this person makes. I find with the things I work on, people are only interested in exactly what they're interested in. And even though it would be cheap to buy everything, they just buy exactly what they want and not more than what they want. And I kind of enjoy that as well. Um, You know, I like the idea of widespread distribution, um, but that's difficult for a lot of these kinds of projects and a lot of these forms where, um, you know, where it doesn't make sense to uh, go through the formalities of having an ISBN for everything. Or a lot of stores um, don't want to deal with something that takes the form of a booklet rather than a book um, or a zine. Um, We've only got about five minutes left in the show, but I wanted to ask you, you you seem to have come into contact with uh, a number of friends of the show, uh, but also a number of Chicago artists. How has that impacted your career and your work? Uh, God, it's hard to, it's hard to measure. Um, I mean, I definitely feel part of a um, locally, but also an international community of artists working in a very collaborative, uh, very generous way. Um, I wrote an essay uh, a number of years ago called Against Competition, uh, which highlights the importance of people finding ways to to work together in, in mutually beneficial ways. And um, I mean, I constantly feel like I'm the beneficiary of other people's generosity. And uh, it's a total honor that people will reach out to me, like people who I think are just extraordinary thinkers and contributors and want to do something difficult, like spend a morning in criminal court together, which is which is not fun. Like, I mean, it's you know, it's extremely enlightening and, you know, but it's often like totally depressing. Uh, one person, um, Josh Rios, who is a writer, curator, artist, um, teaches at the School of the Art Institute. Uh, Josh came along and we spent nine hours in uh, Jason Van Dyke's sentencing hearing the entire day. And, um, you know, doing things like creating space, you know, f- to uh, bring someone into a situation like that, giving them a forum to talk about it, uh, to talk about what they saw, what they thought about it. Um, you know, it, it, I think, you know, it's important, I think, for artists to figure out ways of not only doing their own thing, but also creating space for other people. Um, I like, you know, what's nice about shows like this is you have people who work in libraries, but it's 
like not enough to just create access to books in the library. There's also has to be a radio show, you know. And I think and I think sh- people in Chicago are constantly doing this kind of thing, right? Like, it's not enough just to be an artist. They're also teachers, but it's not enough just to teach. They also really advocate for their students, or they maintain, you know their students become their colleagues within a couple of years of graduating and then they become participants in projects. And then sometimes those students organize things that include their teachers and there's, sort of, there's a sort of reciprocity that um, that's quite beautiful and I think has really very little to do with, you know, economic benefit and a lot to do with uh, maintaining an interesting life practice um, and really trying to figure out ways of, you know, how to further each other's projects, each other's creativity. Well, we've been speaking today with Mark Fisher of Public Collectors. Mark, uh, most of his material, first of all, uh, you can get information about it at publiccollectors.org. Halfletterpress.com is the outlet. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate appreciate it. it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We'll be back in a couple weeks with Jim DeRogatis. That is over at the Dial Live, third Thursday, as always. For right now, we're going to leave Mark with the last word. We've been speaking about the courtroom residency. This is one of those reports. We'll see you in a couple weeks, kids. Mark Fisher. The first thing I noticed in court was the group of court advocacy people for victims sitting in front of us. There were five women and two men. I wondered if they were retirees. Dana Sperry. I was trying to eavesdrop on them a little so I could understand them. First, one of the women said they were also organizing meetings, and one of the organizing people is also a newscaster for local Fox News. They're organizing a bunch of community meetings to understand the police and for the police to understand the community. She also said that they had this challenge of designing a badge. I'm assuming the badge is something having to do with who they are and what they do. She was worried because you'd have to get this badge on before you get to the security scanner. And she said multiple times about being worried about all these people having guns or knives on them who could see these people with these badges on them before they went through the scanners. She thought they could be threatened and said something about putting senior citizen advocates in harm's way. I guess they were worried that potentially they'd be in harm's way by doing what they are doing. They were in court for a while, and then a Latino man who was in custody was brought out to see the judge. I heard something about ordering a psychological or psychiatric evaluation, and then all of his court business was over in about a minute. He was taken back behind the chambers, and after that, the entire group got up and immediately and left. I assumed that was the person they were waiting for. Seven people coordinated around one case that was almost over immediately. They seemed to be the only people there for that case. I don't want to endlessly speculate about what they were doing, but were there victims that can't appear or maybe aren't alive to appear? It appears they have some kind of official or pseudo-official role because they have badges and the lawyers know them. The defense lawyer came over and talked to them. He told them, God bless you. So clearly they had some kind of known standing, but it also made me really self-conscious of us watching the proceedings because I felt like I was watching them and they were watching the court proceedings. It was part of this broader observation I kept having about who is watching what and what do you get to see and not see. It's like this giant public theater, but it's really hard to hear. They had notes, they had lists, and these binders full of stuff, and at one point I saw a big list of names. Clearly they are informed followers. They were not in the position we were in observing. They were tracking, or at least it seemed that way. They seemed to know judges. They are there to observe, but also, I assume, to be seen, because there's not just one, but seven of them. 
they had a real presence. And they were in the first row that you can sit in. Sometimes the family of a defendant will come to the front and stand when their person's case is called. There weren't many people who had family in court for them today. There was one really sad moment where the father was in court, but they pushed his son's hearing forward another month or so. And because they didn't even bring his son over from the jail or prison, the father who was there doesn't even get to see his son, even for like two seconds. His father was there, so clearly he's demonstrating that he cares. And he was quick to come forward when his son's name was called, and the response was just sort of like, he's not here, move it along. To me, that was the most emotional moment of the entire day. Somebody should have apologized to the father for having to come all the way down here, and he doesn't get to see his son. is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Mark Fisher of Public Collectors. Public Collectors and many publications are available from Half Letter Press. This episode originally aired on September 29, 2019. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.